What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The following podcast contains explicit language. Abuelita! What are you doing here? Um, uh, uh, you leave my grandson alone. Doña, please. I was just getting a shine. I know your tricks, mariachi. What did he say to you? He was just showing me his guitar. <gasps> Shame on you. Huh? My grandson is a sweet little angelito querido cielito. He wants no part of your music, mariachi. You keep away from him. <laughs> Hey all, and welcome to another episode of Represent. I'm Aisha Harris, your host, and as you recover from eating much too much delicious Thanksgiving food this holiday weekend, we've got a treat for you. All of this week's installment is inspired by Pixar's new movie, Coco, which has the significant distinction of being the first film from the beloved studio to feature a majority Latino voice cast. Friend of the show, Antonia Sarajito, a producer at Latino USA, joins me to chat about the film and whether or not it succeeds as a representation of Latino culture and where it ranks in the canon of Pixar. But before we dig into that, I wanted to take a step back and look at the ways in which Latinos have historically been portrayed in animation more broadly. Yes, your Speedy Gonzalez's and Dora the Explorers, but also more lesser known or forgotten examples, including, for instance, an episode from the anime series Digimon. Joining me to revisit some of these images that preceded the release of Coco is Carlos Aguilar, a freelance film critic whose work has appeared in IndieWire and Variety Latino, and who is a huge animation buff. Welcome to the show, Carlos. Thank you for having me, Aisha. It's such a pleasure to be able to talk to you about these things that are uh, definitely much more relevant now with the release of Coco coming up next week. Yeah, I know. I was very excited for this movie. But as I mentioned, one of the things I wanted to talk about was sort of all of the examples of Latino representation that have existed before this that have led us to where we are now. And I know you have a lot of thoughts and experience uh, with this as an animation buff. And so I was wondering if you could kind of talk to us about the things you grew up watching and specifically some of the things you encountered as a Latino and how you felt about those representations. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I guess for starters, it's the, the the representations are limited. So that's I me mean, for once. You know, if if representation was limited on, on live action content, uh, it was you know worse when it came to animation. So you know, I grew up watching cartoons. You know, from Cartoon Network, Nickelodeon, and in those cartoons, there were never uh, really any significant characters that represented the Latino community uh, in any shape or form. But, you know, in older cartoons, you know, like the, the most uh, blatant examples like Speedy Gonzalez, who, you know, it's been around for many decades and it's stereotypical. But at the same time, I think a few years back when Warner wanted to like face him out, people wanted him back because he was like a Hispanic icon of sorts. So I feel like because there's so little, some of these kind of have 
they've gotten a place in 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 the consciousness of Latino audiences because there's there's no other ones to look at. I feel like they're now more in movies and TV. Most of them are very stereotypical still, but I think what I remember most, I remember an episode. And it wasn't even an American cartoon, but I remember there was an episode of a Japanese anime, Digimon, which was very popular all over the world. Mm -hmm. And there was an episode in which they um, they go to Mexico. And I just remember being so blown away by that. Just not even, you know, I've never seen any of the, you know, the Cartoon Network characters or Nickelodeon characters or any of them visiting Mexico, going to Mexico, really even referencing Mexico. So to see this cartoon going to, you know, the Imagine Ruins or things like that was really a shock. So it was just one episode, but it just so vivid in my mind that, that even, you know, that it was a Japanese cartoon that had to go to Mexico and made an episode there. And did you feel as though, I, I don't know if you can remember that episode, the specifics of it, but when you saw it, was that like a good feeling and or do, did it feel... Do you think that the show handled that trip to Mexico well and the way it represented Mexico? It wasn't perfect, but I think it was one of the characters, the main characters in the show was a bunch of kids that had the Digimons. And one of them, the ones that went to Mexico, they met a Mexican girl that had her own Digimon and they had, it was an adventure in the Mayan ruins. But, you know, years later, I looked for the Japanese version on YouTube and some of the dialogue they use is very stereotypical, cheesy Spanish. So it wasn't perfect, but mm-hmm. I felt like at least they managed to to focus on the Mayan ruins and that part of the culture. And it was actually an indigenous uh, girl. So I feel like they try a little harder than some other ones have, but it wasn't clearly wasn't perfect. And this was probably maybe the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you mentioned Speedy Gonzalez, who obviously he's, you know, probably the most well-known example of Latino representation, I think, at least in America, when it comes to animation uh, and cartoons. And, you know, one of the things I found interesting when I was sort of digging into a little research about it is that, as you mentioned, like, the way you frame it is that they, like, he's very popular in part because the representation is very limited. But, you know, I was reading and I was surprised that he is, like, considered a Mexican hero and in, in, to some people and the fact that you know he doesn't he talks in some maybe stereotypical ways but he also seems to sort of defy some stereotypes about uh latinos specifically the fact that he's speedy he's fast and he he outwits all the the quote-unquote villains or sylvester or whoever is in the cartoon at, at the time but do you think like if if there had been more representations would you consider him to be do you think he would be considered more offensive Oh, definitely. I think so. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think if there were if there were more of a variety of a range of characters that represented Mexican culture, yeah, because you know he's he's wearing the sombrero and it's the accent and it's like and I think from what I remember, the town or the places that he inhabits in Mexico are you know uh, shanty towns are like you know very poor villages and things like that so it mm-hmm. does create you know perpetuates this image of mexico that we see in many other cartoons i remember there was an episode of garfield you know garfield and friends in which they go to mexico and it's also like a shanty town with a man with a sombrero and you know the big mustache so i feel like that image you know is perpetuated by this character so if if there were more before it'll be different but it hasn't changed that that much you know there's there's other characters that i don't know if you remember like the bumblebee man in the simpsons who is oh, supposed to be also yeah. a Mexican, so Mexican character, you know, beyond stereotypical as well. And more, you know, more recent shows, Consuela, the maid in Family Guy, 
who is a, a Hispanic mate who just repeats phrases and, you know, just is sort of like uh, sometimes is incompetent and sometimes she gets the job done. But it's 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 the only uh, significant Hispanic character in Family Guy and it's a mate, you know, which is, again, another perpetuation of the same thing. Oh, no, no. Doggy out. What? Out, afuera. I live here. No, no, afuera. But look, I'm trying... Ah! Hola? Yes, could you please put Brian back on? No, no. Do- doggy afuera. I feel like there's more now, but that doesn't mean they're better. Yeah, I mean, Consuela's a good example. I also... I guess I hadn't realized that Seth MacFarlane created a show a few years ago that was about it was supposed to be like a joke on the Mexican border border town border yeah. town yeah yeah and I don't well I don't know if he actually created it but he no it was created by this man named Mark Henteman who appears to be white to me but the whole premise of that that show was like it was a fictitious town that combines the border of California and Mexico and it's it seemed like it was just family guy but like probably even more racist than family guy now i've never seen it but it didn't last very long and did you see border town yeah i feel like there were some episodes in there that did kind of um you know try to create a dialogue between cuz half of the characters were also very stereotypical Americans on the border, kind of, you know, very cowboyish kind of white people. So he did try to create a conversation, you know, in the same way that the other spin of the in Family Guy with, with the black character, that they created a spin of that also didn't last long. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, I don't know what that is about those shows. I don't know if the, if the Latino community or the black community did not want to see those shows because, because they were not well-written or, or they weren't funny. Or simply because there was, you know, not enough publicity or interest. I don't know why those shows didn't last or didn't become, you know, more culturally relevant. Perhaps it also stems from the fact that they maybe they were not created from the community, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like especially for people of color and women, anything involving Seth MacFarlane can sort of raise your antenna signal and be like, do I really want to, <laughs> do I really want to give this a <laughs> shot? Uh, because he does have a very spotty record with, with dealing with those types of things in the sort of a frat boy humor way. One thing I want to talk about a little bit more is like the stereotype, you know, you have Speedy Gonzalez, who's like, he's the shantytown sort of, and these other characters you mentioned, but there's also Slowpoke Rodriguez, who was uh, his cousin who only appeared in like a few episodes of the like the Looney Tunes series but he was sort of the opposite and he was dubbed the slowest mouse in all of Mexico and he sort of had the stereotype about him sort of being high all the time I mean, that seems like another sort of stereotype that we see often. I also think of, do you remember Oliver and Company with um, Cheech Marine? Yes, yep. Cheech Marine mm-hmm. as Tito, who like, you know, Cheech Marine has, I think, people love him, but he also was like the only Latino character in Oliver and Company. And so when, again, when you only put him in, he's known for you know, being a very huge pothead. When you put him in in the movie like that, it's like, it's another example of that being the only representation you see. Yeah, and you know, it's always the case of like, there could only be one Latino character, there could only be one black character, you know, it's like, 
tokenism. You know, it's only one of them you choose and, and that's it. You know, and there's there's other examples of, of, of that in, in recent movies. I think I mentioned to you uh, briefly before, for example, The Speakable of Me Too, the villain is called El Macho right. and his voice. It's voiced by Benjamin Brath, which I guess it's it makes it a little little better that uh you know someone of, of Hispanic heritage is voicing him, but still it's this, you know, heavy man with a mustache as you know is hyper masculine and they're making fun of that but it's also a stereotype you know the big chubby mexican with the mustache and 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 all these colorful things you know and there was uh, the movie planes that disney released a few years back and one of the airplanes was a mexican airplane uh called el chupacabra which was voiced by carlos alarraqui who is an argentine american uh voice actor and that was again, you know, hyper passionate, you know, over sexualized masculine Mexican man that's kind of strange and very stereotypical with the mustache. So I feel like they try to include these characters, but they just feel like they have to make them overly Mexican in the worst possible way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so what do, what do these all all of these stereotypes sort of come down to? Like, how have they, if if they have at all, like how have they affected you? personally like do you feel as though they let people sort of see you in this way or see your culture in this way like in in day-to-day life oh for sure yeah i mean every halloween there's still people wearing you know the the hats and the ponchos and trying to be mexican in that sort of way Mm -hmm. and the whole idea of like caliente and picante and spicy and passion and hot this kind Mm -hmm. of it's just like a strange way in which, you know, Mexicans or Latinos are seen that these characters continue to perpetuate in, in, in a way that has no nuance, has no, you know, not in a way that white or mainstream characters are seen. You know, there's plenty of there's a there's an array of characters of white characters in animation from Hey Arnold to all the Disney characters to all these things. But in when it comes to Latinos and people of color. There's very few of them, and they are these stereotypical uh, creations that are more often than not not created by anyone from that community. Sometimes they're voiced by someone in the community, um, and I guess that's kind of like the more the most effort they they're willing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it really ha- they have no nuance, no not really no real interest in, in portraying the culture in a more profound way. Yeah. I mean, what do you think of something like Dora the Explorer, though? Like, like, obviously, that is a show that's specifically aimed at kids, but it seems to have been sort of the the opposite in many ways of all these stereotypes we've talked about. And it, it was a huge, huge hit, like selling millions of DVD copies. And, and, you know, I still see to this day, like kids with the Dora Explorer backpacks and, and lunchboxes. Um, do you feel as though she's sort of helped to move the needle a little bit and has helped us get to now in the 2000s and the 2010s to better representation? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I do feel like that Dora uh, is a character that um, portrayed uh, a different side and that became a mainstream phenomenon which meant that, you know, kids that had no connection to the Hispanic or Latino world were learning Spanish, you know, and the creators or, you know, the showrunners were, I think every single girl that has voiced Dora comes from Hispanic heritage. Mm-hmm. At least the three of the three of them have done it 
uh, so far they all come, you know, I think it's one of one of them is Ecuadorian American, one of them is Mexican American, one of them is Peruvian American. So they've been careful with that. My only problem with with something like Dora is the fact that it was created by people that had no connection to the Latino community. Mm -hmm. And that kind of, you know, shows you that, yes, these shows are good and they're coming out and they're, they're showing the community in a different light. But it also shows you that from from the inception of these things, there are not enough Latinos working in animation or working in those positions to create this show. So we have to wait for someone else to come and create these shows. And then maybe they'll, you know, they'll, they use the voices of Latino actors and they they might do some research and do a very job at, you know, representation. But still, the people that are creating these things are not from the community. They have no connection, you know, and it's like from the inception, we're not represented behind the scenes. You know, it's not even about what's on the screen from the beginning, from what some of the people that are, are creating these shows are not from the community. So we have to wait for someone else to come and, and do these things. And then perhaps uh, we, we get to play a role in them. Yeah. I mean, that brings me to, of course, Coco, which in some ways was from its inception, someone from the community bringing this to light. Um, the co-director is Adrian Molina, uh, mm -hmm. along with Lee Unkrich. But, you know, they, they have made some missteps, you know, that have been reported like a few years ago. Disney tried to uh, trademark the Dios de los Muertos name, mm -hmm. uh, which not go over well. And uh, not unlike Moana, they eventually brought in a group, like a council of people from the community to sort of guide them and advise them as they're making this movie. You've seen Coco, uh, and I've seen Coco. And do you think that shows in the film the fact that there is much more heavy representation from the origins from the beginning, behind the scenes? Or, like, what were your thoughts on Coco? Definitely. No, yeah, I feel like it, it does get the authenticity and the specificity right. You know, with the, the whole thing with the co-directing, it was... Sometimes I don't know how to feel about that because for most of the, the development of Coco, it was only uh, Lee, the director, you know, and I feel like at some point they felt the need to bring Adrian, who was originally only the screenwriter, as a co-director to kind of balance that out because, you know, it could it could definitely feel like it's, you know, a white director making this movie. Right. So I feel like that might have been kind of like a political move on Disney's part to like give him the co-director title, even if he wasn't that from the inception. I know that they went to Mexico to do a lot of research trips, that they spent a lot of time with the community, and that definitely shows on screen. And the voices also, they made an effort uh, to bring a Latino cast in it. There's, very, there's things in that movie that are so specific to Mexican culture that you could only get from someone or, or that really knows it. They had advisors, like there was a woman called um, Ligia Villalobos, who's the screenwriter. She wrote uh, Under the Same Moon, and she also uh, worked in a lot of other Latino projects, and she was one of the advisors. So they did, I mean, they surrounded themselves with people from the community that could give them insight into specificity, like little details that, you know, like one of Miguel's uh, relatives wears a, a Mexican soccer jersey, you know, that's very mm -hmm. specific and it just makes such a, a difference visually that you would never, you know, think of seeing that in a in a Pixar movie or like food that you see on some scenes or the the colors or the the props that you see around the houses and things like that mm -hmm. uh, are very specific. And I feel like that's what they got from those research trips and from, you know, from surrounding themselves uh, with people that knew that culture. I still feel like 
from the inception, from the people, you know, getting the credit still needs to be more, you know, Latino talent represented. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I guess we'll, it's one step at a time. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess my last question to you would be sort of one of the things that I'm not totally clear on is like how many animators Disney has working who are Latino or who are even just like people of color in general. Um, Because like, you know, yes, you can have the council, you can have the screenwriter and and all of that and the voice actors be Latino. But then like, who are the people who are actually drawing and and creating these, the the visuals that we see? And I, I'm curious, like for those who are listening and especially someone like me who is like not totally in the know of everything animation related, like who are some of the Latino animators and shows that they should look out for that, you know, could fill that void of what even Coco might not be able to fill in terms of representation. Yeah, there's big names in animation in terms of Latinos. I think the one that you know that comes to mind is just uh, Jorge Gutierrez, the director of uh, the Book of Life. He's by far the kind of the strongest voice in 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 terms of Latino animation. There are some other ones that work for Disney. I remember earlier this year, um, uh, NALIP or NALIP, the National Association of Latino Independent Producers, they have in LA every year. They have a summit and you know they have panels on different things of of, of Latino media and content so there there was a panel this year on four latinos that work for disney uh more on the on the uh, tv side so one of them was you know an actual animator one of them was a showrunner another one of them uh, was kind of a in development so there are a few but i feel like there's really no way of knowing how many there are with positions in positions that actually have power that they have a say to shape things and to do more than just be a hand in the process, you know? Right. So I feel like if you go to Latin America, there, oh, there are a few studios that are doing things in Latin America, you know, that are not uh, at the level of Pixar, but they're doing some things. But in the U.S., I feel the one that comes to mind just, you know, off the top of my head is Jorge Gutierrez because he's the one that has the most relevance and who has really been true to representing uh, Latino culture from his TV shows and the Book of Life and, you know, what he's doing next. So, um yeah it's it, it's tough out there i feel like just working in animation and or the film industry in general is difficult but if you're a latino that wants to tell latino stories it's it's even harder to to do that yeah well my hope is that with coco they will see that there is a hunger to see more representation of latino uh, culture on screen and as i've talked to many people about this like Latinos make up just like black people, they make up a huge segment of the people who are buying these tickets. So I imagine Coco will do very well this holiday weekend. For sure. It did it did fantastic in Mexico. They opened it in Mexico a full month before the US. It opened at the end of October in Mexico. And everyone I've talked to is, you know, over the moon with the with the movie is broken. A box office records in Mexico is done so well. I'm actually myself feel like I wanna wait to see the the Spanish version. Mm-hmm. The English English with a little the Spanish, the Spanglish version that we're gonna see or that we've seen in the US so far. It's a little strange to me. So I really wanna see the one in full Spanish to get the full sense of the uh, of the story but yeah it's done fantastic in mexico and i think that because it's pixar people are going to go see it regardless even if they don't have a particular interest in mexico and they they, they might come out with a re, with a renewed or newfound uh, interest in mexican or latino culture so i think i'm sure it's going to do very well yeah well it was a pleasure to have you on carlos thank you so much for chatting with us about all of these different representations some a lot of them not good uh but some some good so thank you 
Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Abuelita runs our house just like Mama Imelda did. No music. No music. I think we're the only family in Mexico who hates music. And my family's fine with that. But me? Be back by lunch, mijo. Love you, mama. I am not like the rest of my family. Hola, Miguel. Hola. So, up next, my conversation with Antonia about Coco, Pixar's latest family-friendly tearjerker. If you haven't caught up with Coco yet, which came out earlier this week, a quick primer. Miguel is a 12-year-old boy who dreams of becoming a famous musician like Ernesto de la Cruz, a mid-century singing cowboy who died long ago. Yet, music has been banished from Miguel's family going back several generations. His great-great-grandfather left behind his wife and their daughter Coco to pursue a music career and never looked back, leaving an emotional scar that resonates into the present day. Due to a confluence of events and mishaps that we'll discuss in detail soon, Miguel accidentally winds up in the land of the dead during Dios de los Muertos celebrations and reconnects with the spirits of his deceased relatives, kicking off a journey of self-discovery. This is a Pixar movie after all. The voice cast includes Gail Garcia Bernal, Benjamin Bratt, Jaime Camille, and Rene Victor. And now to Antonia. I'm so excited to chat about this with you. Oh, my God. I'm so excited to talk about Coco. (laughs) Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Of course. One of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you about this is because, shameless plug, but you are also putting together, you have put together a very excellent podcast segment for Latino USA centered around Coco, not just Coco, but also Disney's representation of Latino culture in general. We're actually doing an entire hour specifically on Disney's relationship to Latin America, Yeah, which is way deeper than I think people realize. You knew this because you know everything, but in the (laughs) yeah, I like mentioned you were like, oh yeah, the El Grupo. I was like, oh, she knows. But for those who don't know, El Grupo was like the nickname of a group of animators who traveled with Disney in the '40s to like fight Nazis or fight the spread of fascism uh, on this goodwill trip. So that like the U.S. government hired Disney to go to Latin America to fight off Nazi sentiment, and so it's both like. Latin Americans love Disney. Everyone in the whole world loves Disney. Like all kids around in any country, I think, know Disney characters. But Disney himself has this long political history with Latin America, which I found fascinating. Everyone should check it out. We'll put everything in the show pages and connect to that. I'm also in it. I was in the episode, yeah. (laughs) I did an interview with Maria Hinojosa, and we talked about just Disney and its progressive politics in general. So now that we have that out of the way... (laughs) What did you think of the film? I loved it. Mm-hmm. Did you love it? I did. I had heard rumblings. I didn't I don't read reviews before I see movies, but like I had heard the reviews were kind of just like not great, but they were sort of tempered reviews. They oh, were really I mean that was I what heard I that. heard. Yeah. And these are early, early reviews. These were like a couple, you know, two or three weeks ago. And, you know, as more reviews come in, I imagine they might be more glowing. But so I went into it being like, huh. Like, I wonder, I I didn't really know much about what the story was going to be. They've done a really good job of keeping that under wraps. And once the story happened, I was like, this is familiar in so many ways, but it's also like so new and different in so many ways Mm -hmm. that like I could appreciate all of these elements and the way they put them in together. Totally. So I really enjoyed it. 
I mean, I was sobbing for a good 30 minutes just uncontrollably. <laughs> yes, yes. Pixar is very good at that. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, I guess we should get into a little. I gave a little bit of a setup. But essentially, we have Miguel, who is 12 years old, and he wants to be a musician. And the movie opens with like this very, it does a very good job of telling a story through, I, I don't know what they're called. It's exactly. called Papel Picado. And I think it, it's pretty much like in every Mexican restaurant you go to, you yes, see these, yeah. the, these decorations. Of like they're the thin they're like colored cutouts. papers, yeah. yeah, they're so pretty. Yeah, I was like already. I mean, I'm so biased. The second I saw Bobby Miguel, I was like, oh my god, I was like <laughs> crying. Yeah, so they tell the story of the the great great grandfather leaving the family behind and Mama Coco, uh, who is Miguel's great grandmother, not having a father because he went off to become a musician. And so her mother, Mama Coco's mother, his great great grandmother banishes music and then that is carried on throughout the several generations that follow mm-hmm. and he has this obsession with Ernesto de la Cruz who's like sort of like a Roy Rogers meets I, I don't know what the other yeah, he's just like, a singing cowboy yeah he's I think he's based off of oh what is his name the like Latin lover with that amazing voice Montalban Oh, Ricardo Montalban? Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, Ricardo Montalban. Okay. He, Ricardo Montalban wasn't a singer, but like the vo- the voice in the TV thing is like very Ricardo Montalban. Right. And yeah. and so Ernesto de la Cruz, he's a, both a singer and he's in these movies and I, I really appreciated the the way in which they there's a a scene early on where Miguel he has this like shrine, this hidden shrine it's so cute. To, to Ernesto that he hides from his family and he goes in there and he watches these old VHS tapes of them like eclipse of his best movie moments and and every movie it's like it doesn't matter what scene it is he's always talking about how like you have to like seize your moment and love will conquer all and blah 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 like at one point he's talking to a nun it just reminded me of sort of like Bing Crosby or where they were the same character in lots of movies but they're always in different settings or even Elvis it's like yeah yeah I thought it was really I thought that was a really good way of setting things up yeah well also visually just that scene is so beautiful the lighting that they got is just was so pretty yeah and I do think being from LA it's really funny like especially in East LA like rockabilly culture and also like nostalgic sort of the 50s, like the 50s in Mexico, like Mexico City in the 50s is very, I think it's sort of coming, having a, a moment right now, even in fashion and like Latino fashion. And I mm. think that it really tapped into this like very specific Mexican-American nostalgia. Mm. So I thought that was really cool. Is it, Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I'm not aware of like this, that sort so, of nostalgia. Yeah. So in the 50s and the 60s, like doo-wop. Richie uh, Valens sort of. Yes. Richie yeah. Va- like that whole vibe is super popular. And this character is from before that, I, but I feel like they're combining lots of different styles. Like he also is was very reminiscent of like the golden era of Mexican film. The Erna, Ernesto de la Cruz character. Yeah. 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 And so it feels like they try to tap into a lot of different time periods that are very referential within like Latino culture. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's also maybe me <laughs> totally reading into it, but it just felt. It felt like it was done with such care, like the details were done from a place of knowing. And the little kid, like, his obsession with the guitar, it had so many things. Like, there was mariachi music, but then there was also this character who wasn't just playing mariachi music. He was playing, like, boleros. I don't, maybe I'm wrong about the rockabilly thing. Maybe that wasn't present, but I just felt it. At I one mean, point. I guess, yeah, I don't remember hearing too much of that. I felt like the Ernesto character, he hearkened more to, like, the. 
I always forget the name of that song. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the, yeah. Yeah, the Cielito Lindo. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. It seemed like that sort of like very romantic mm-hmm. lover type of song. Yeah. The, because the song they have, it, it's called Remember Me. And it's sung many, many times. Mm-hmm. Like, Remember me. <laughs> and it just has this very crooner 30s, That's 40s That's maybe feeling. what it, I'm feeling. Yeah, the crooner yeah. thing. But it... it I liked that it had it spanned generations. Obviously, that's the mm-hmm. the point of the whole film. But I liked that there was a sort of like historical aspect to it. I thought yeah. that was very cool. Yeah, let's talk about the way in which it interprets Dios de los Muertos celebrations. Mm-hmm. My understanding of Dios de los Muertos is sadly very much limited to like what I learned in Spanish class in high school. Yeah. And so I vaguely remember the offerings, the ofrendas, but the way in which Pixar sort of reimagines this world, I'm curious to know like what you thought about it because, you know, as a non-Latino, an American, I feel like whenever Pixar Disney gets into this mode of, of trying to, I don't know, appropriate's not the right word, but like takes on these other cultures and includes people from those cultures and behind the scenes and making it, there's always the risk of like, how much do they actually listen to the people that they're working Mm -hmm. with? And also like, how does that come across? Does it feel as if it's cherry picking? So the way in which, I guess we should describe a little bit about how he even gets into the land of the dead, which is that Miguel finds the the real mausoleum for Ernesto. And he's trying to find a guitar to play for the Dios de los Muertos uh, competition. His parents have gotten rid of his guitar. And so he finds the the guitar that Ernesto played and starts playing it. And then it, it summons the spirits and he winds up in the in the land of the dead, even though he's not dead. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, he gets there and <laughs> it's funny like so the entrance to the dead it's basically like crossing the border <laughs> I know that I thought was so interesting that they had all this border crossing uh, imagery interesting and in, in what way did you find it because obviously there are a lot of that holds a lot of political weight yeah. in terms of what it means for Latinos and foreigners in, in general or, yeah you know so let's go back for a sec so I'm Argentinian both my parents are from Argentina and I did not grow up right. uh, celebrating Dia de los Muertos but my grandparents on my father's side still live in Mexico City and I've spent a lot of time in Mexico City uh, probably more time than I've spent in Argentina so it's hard for me to really talk about the ceremony itself I will say also so we had the co-directors on the show Adrian Molina grew up Mexican-American in California but he did not celebrate Dia de los Muertos growing up, which I thought was really interesting. Hmm, yeah. And one thing, one of the things that he told us in his interview that I thought was fascinating is there's a really important scene. This is a spoiler. Well, I guess it's maybe not a spoiler. They kind of lay out this idea that there's three deaths. And he, and he said that he learned this himself in doing more research about Dia de los Muertos, which is there's like when you die, like when your heart starts beating, when they put you in the ground is the second one. And then the third and final one is the one when people stop remembering you. Right. And so much of the movie centers around that idea. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that first off, I think that's really heavy for kids. It's super. But but here's where just start, not to cut you off. But yeah, yeah. Here's where I saw a lot of parallels to Inside Out. Mm -hmm. And just the world in which they created, which felt like you had these characters, these protagonists who are trying to, like, stop something from happening in a way that Inside Out is about, like, trying to stop the girl from, like, having all these feelings or, like, getting really sad. Um, This is about him trying to, like, stop someone from being forgotten and and, and helping that out. And I feel like they're both very, very heavy. Yeah. And I feel like Bing Bong, the imaginary friend character, was very much like Hector. Interesting. Who is his uh well, 
I won't spoil it, but Hector plays a role that feels very similar. To Bing Bong, yeah. To Bing Bong. Yeah, now that you mention it, that's totally true. Yeah. So apparently the animators were, or Lee was talking about how they were having a very difficult time kind of closing the plot hole with why it's so important for Hector not to be forgotten. And that's why they included that scene where the guy is forgotten. I think his name is like Chancho or Chacho or something like that. So we should clarify who Hector is. Hector is, we, when we first meet him, he's trying to cross from the land of the dead into the real world. So the Sorry. day of the dead is like the one day where the people in the afterlife get to visit their members but only if they have pictures of them on their ofrenda and they're remembering them. And so because Hector doesn't have his picture on the ofrenda, then he isn't able to visit the land of the living. Right. And he's been trying desperately to pretend to be somebody else. Frida and Kahlo yeah. to be. He tries to be Frida Kahlo to be exact. And at first you think that he is like, he kind of looks homeless. Like he, he looks like a shady character. You think he's trying to trick Miguel and not actually help him. And I thought Gael Garcia Bernal did a beautiful job playing him. I was actually very surprised. Yeah, because sometimes I find Gael to be a little too serious. Mm. Uh, so no, he's like totally he Lucy, was super here. fun. Yeah, yeah, that was great. So, so much of the movies about this idea that he is being forgotten by his family in the land of the living, and why is it important for us to remember? And I think that that was that is the strength of the film is because it gets so heavy into like meaning of life. I was sitting there thinking like, oh my God, if I had kids, I don't know if I would bring them to see this because I'm like going through so much like existential emotion right now. Right. Uh, it's very, it's so heavy. Yeah. yeah. But it it was done really beautifully. And one of the cool things about that celebration is how in Mexico, it, it's true that there is so much death imagery and death is embraced in a way that is so playful and fun and and about life and not about death right. uh and i think that that was very much felt in the movie so i thought that was done really beautifully and there were a bunch of other things that were really interesting so if you go to oaxaca there are these little animal like wooden animals that they make that are beautiful and they're called alebrijes and they're like multicultural cats or like zebras or they come in all sorts of different animals and first off, I was shocked that an English language movie for kids, they use the word alebrije. Mm -hmm. I was like, that's crazy. I don't know yeah. how they got that <laughs> greenlit. But for instance, that tradition has nothing to do with Dia de los Muertos. Lee even talked to us about that, too, where he was like, we were really stressed about mixing and matching and not wanting to be incorrect. And one of the cool things that they did for this movie is that they hired a bunch of consultants. For instance, I don't know, I'm sure you remember this, but Disney, when they first decided to do this movie, tried to trademark Day of the Dead. Yeah, I remember that. Very, and that did not go over well. And one of the leading dissenting voices to this online was this guy, Lalo Alcaraz, who is a cartoonist. Two of his most popular cartoons ever have been, like, included Mickey Mouse. Like, he's totally vilified Disney. Mm. And so, I mean, Disney's so smart. They were like, one, JK, not going to trademark <laughs> that. And two, will you come help consult this film? And he's been out there now promoting the crap out of it mm -hmm. i mean that's it. like elena poniatoska she's an amazing mexican journalist she's one of my favorite writers she is the voice of coco of oh, mama, coco. mama coco yeah so it, it's this really crazy thing where so much of mexican culture and they went so deep to try to get things right and i personally came away feeling like they did get mm -hmm. it right i had zero moments where i was watching the movie and i cringed 
I thought they were very respectful. And I thought most importantly, like it was done with a level of love that like every Pixar is made from. You really felt it. I mean, I wanted to call my parents immediately after and be like, I love you. Yeah. I mean, I was I was a bawling mess for the last like 20 minutes of the movie. And it, it just kind of came out of nowhere. Like the ending did not come out of nowhere. But like I felt like, oh, yeah, this is this is cute. I love this. Like I'm really into this. These characters are great. And then all of a sudden I'm just like, what? Whoa. And I'm like, there's a tear falling down my face. It's just like. <laughs> It's like, and then they just started coming, and I was like, God damn it, like, these are, I am bawling now. I mean, I did want to ask, like, one thing I found interesting was, as you sort of mentioned earlier, was the, it's, it is an English language movie, but there are so much Spanish that's just kind of dropped in there. And I mean, I do wonder, like, I don't know, I kind of would have been interested to see, like, what it w- would have been like if the entire movie had just been in Spanish. I know that would be really, like, I, I don't think Disney would ever get to that point where they would do that unless it was like in Mexico. Like if they're like, I'm sure in Mexico, it's all in Spanish. Well, they but. premiered the film a whole month earlier in Mexico. And yeah. a lot of the actors are Spanish speakers. So it's the same people playing both roles. Like El Garcia Bernal also does the Spanish voice. Mm-hmm. And a, a coworker of mine was actually just in Mexico and she saw it and she told me she loved it. And at one point she was like, I think the movie is different in Spanish. And I was like, what? Like they made a different. She said, no, 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 the plot's the same. But she was like, it was so clear to me that it wasn't a translation that's what she told me so i really think they thought about it for two audiences and i think it's very telling that they premiered it first in mexico yeah that is that is a big deal Mm -hmm. it's it's interesting because like the another movie i thought a lot about while watching it was moana because of the whole theme of family and your ancestors like they both have that very like strong connection to like the past and those who have came before them and it feels like they kind of maybe learned from Moana because I think earlier this month or last month, they released the Moana soundtrack mm-hmm. in Maori, which is like a whole year after the Moana movie came out. And, you know, I think it's smart for them to instead like preempt it and, yeah. and have have it debut in Mexico first. And also like Moana last year had that whole costume issue mm-hmm. with um, Maui's costume and the fact that you could just like peel on the tattoos. It feels like they, they might be learning in some ways. And clearly the Day of the Dead thing was like a few years ago when they tried to corn that. So yeah, they made their mistakes early. Yes, they made their mistakes early. Um, <laughs> like, let's get these out of the way so we can just get to the movie. Yeah. The other thing that we asked about when we did the interviews, I don't know if you remember that movie Book of Life. Yeah, very vaguely. I don't think I, I feel like I've seen parts of it on an airplane once. Yeah. But like never. So when Coco was being announced, it was really weird because we were like, is this just the book of life? Oh, you know what? I did watch it and then I, I stopped watching it because it, it was not, it was not very good. It was not very good. What, I feel what was bad the plot that, of that? The plot was really similar. It was that a kid passed over to the land of the dead and had to get out for some reason. But there was a love story also. That yeah. I kind of forget the details, but it's like eerily similar in plot. Like there's like a little boy who finds himself in the land of the dead. Yeah. Also, the two animators behind that are this really sweet couple from Tijuana. <laughs> Mm. especially because there's a whole theme in Coco about not stealing other people's ideas. Yes. Should we, should we, should we dig into that a little bit? Yeah. Just like without giving too many spoilers away, that theme actually was very fascinating. The fact that there's this whole other plot about a certain character coming to light, not being as great as you may have supposed him to be. And part of the reason why he's not so great is because he has literally been appropriating someone else's work and calling it his his own. Yeah. Which has felt so relevant I know. <laughs> in so many ways. I mean, the timing for this film is crazy. And it makes you wonder, 
like why are they doing this now and why all these topics now it's i mean they've been working on it for six years so i don't it's crazy to think that they didn't start this movie as a reaction to a lot of the discourse about Latinos right now, especially in politics. Yeah. You know, one thing that you talked about with Medea that I think is really important is you mentioned the Obama effect. Yeah. I, I mean, want, the yeah. effect, the fact that I think Obama, his presidency really made it cool for multiculturalism to, mm-hmm. to be profitable. It made it made people realize, oh, I want to see more of myself, people who are underrepresented. So to me, that's part of the Obama effect, which, you know, many people have written about before. Yeah. But I do think it's really interesting how Disney is a giant corporation. It's been creating the stories that children like movies that children encounter for decades. And to think that they have made this what I think is a huge turn it's probably like the Obama effect is part of it. But the main question that I wanted to answer in the episode that we're doing is like, one, how did we get here that Disney went from from being this company that did not tell multicultural stories to now being this incredibly progressive, like anti-racist corporation that's putting out these narratives that are like are so different than even. And it's weird. I mean, I wonder how you feel about this. Like you and I grew up in like the age of like the multicultural Disney princess. Yeah, I mean, we had Jasmine, we had Pocahontas. Mulan's not a princess, but they sometimes market her as that. Yeah. And uh, by the time Tiana came around, I was 20, 21. So I was too old for her. But like, I still appreciated the movie. Yeah. And so it's not that I feel like it's been happening. I don't think this is out of nowhere. I don't think Coco was like the first movie that they like dip into doing multicultural things. It does make you wonder like, why in this political situation is this what we're seeing? Well, why not? And also just like, why did it take so friggin' long? Yeah. Because one of the things Maria kept saying was like, Latinos make up a huge amount of the box office, just like black people make up a huge amount of the box office. Oh, we're killing it. We're the only reason. Yes. And yet, like, it took this long to get a movie with a mostly Latino voice cast, an animated movie, and from Disney. Like, it should not have taken this long. And then the question is, how long will it be until the next one? Just like it's been almost a decade now since Princess Tiana, there hasn't been another, you know, main black character in a Disney Pixar movie. I mean, there have been voice actors behind them, but like... Well, that's the other thing. Pixar doesn't have a lot of The Incredibles is the only other, like, people Pixar film. Everything else was... Well, there's Inside Out. Yeah, but the main character is actually not people. They're feelings. (laughs) True, yes. And there's Monsters, Inc., which has Boo, who I... Boo always read as might maybe part Asian. She, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I, I but it's still, tell. it's still not a story about people. It's like about animals or right. made up things. It's not right. centered in like a reality that we understand. Yeah, yeah. But Disney Pixar, while they're both very much simpatico in some ways, like Disney owns Pixar, but Disney has been a little bit. They deal more with humans, yeah. and so you know you have uh, Big Hero Six which has a lot of like Japanese influence, anime, that sort of thing, and Moana, obviously. And uh, I think they were supposed to be doing another film, but that got shelved. That was supposed to be possibly Latino, um, but like Jack and the Beanstalk, but like set in a fictional like Latino country. Oh, interesting. I think that got shelved. Well, we were arguing in the office about the Emperor's New Groove. Oh, which I totally forgot about and never really thought of as like supposed to <laughs> have been a- <laughs> Latino. I mean, it's like a fictional sort of Aztec-y. It's which supposed I guess- to be in Peru. Right. Oh, 
Yeah, I guess I never thought about it. Yeah, okay. Cusco. But Cusco, I love Emperor's <laughs> You love Emperor's New Groove? It's, I do. I think it's highly underrated. <laughs> That's so funny. But I definitely, as a kid, was not like, oh, I totally relate <laughs> to this film. Yeah, no. Well, I never thought about it that way because, you know, it's like John Goodman's a voice. <laughs> yeah, and like David Spade is the David, main guy. Yeah, and or Eartha Kitt, who, oh, love her. But anyway, I digress. I hope that we see more. And I hope that it's no longer a big deal yeah. that this is the case. No, Coco, I think, is visually stunning. The story I thought was beautiful. The characters are, felt very real. And I think everyone should go over Thanksgiving break and watch it with their family. It's going to make you just like want to hug everyone forever. Yeah. And, you know, as Antonia said, Latinos are going to the movies. Make more movies with Latino people in them. There you go. Just make it happen. I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see more of it. Yeah, for sure. I think they should do another Selena movie. Ooh, okay. We Sorry. that that could be a whole other conversation. <laughs> I want to hear those thoughts, <laughs> but we have to go. <laughs> but thank you so much, Antonia. Thank you, Aisha. And that's a wrap. As mentioned earlier, be sure to check out Latino USA's amazing history-packed episode around Coco and Disney's representation of Latino culture, including interviews with Coco's directors, Lee Unkrich and Adrian Molina, and a segment with yours truly. You can find a link to that episode on the show page. Our Represent episode this week is produced by the wonderful Chow Tu, standing in for Verilyn. Our excellent social media assistant is Marissa Martinelli, and our intro-outro music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. And we'll be taking next week off, but we'll be back on December 8th. Enjoy the rest of your holiday weekend, and until next time.